Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, September 19th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the waterline on the Mississippi River is dropping with little rainfall on the horizon. Then doctors say parents play an important role in keeping children safe from respiratory illnesses. And we reflect on the life of civil rights activist Anne Moody, who wrote a book now required reading, and a soon inductee into her alma mater's Hall of Fame. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The water level of the Mississippi River is getting shallow for shipping as rainfall remains low across the nation. Some barge companies have had to reduce their loads. Economists say this could cause the price of some ship goods to rise because farmers are struggling to get their crops transported on the river. Pablo Diaz is executive director of the Warren County Port Commission in Vicksburg. He tells our Lacey Alexander business continues as usual, but some operations have had to make changes. We cannot do much about what nature does, right? So it all depends on what's happening upriver and what has happened in the last uh, several months. But certainly the levels are low right now. It hasn't impacted us as bad as it could, um, but we did have to close one elevated T-Dock and, and an elevated crane that we cannot use any longer right now because the water being uh, so low. But we have seen worse, so I guess that's the silver lining on it. Those things that you guys had to close, what operations does that take away? Well, it takes away certain uh, ability to move grains, for example, but some of them, depending what product it is, we actually can move it to a different dock. Now, it might not be a covered dock, okay, so we have to make different plans so that it can be transloaded while there is no rain or, or in better conditions, I guess, climate conditions, so that hopefully we can accomplish the same goal. But even on the other dock that we have, we are using what is called spacer barges so that the barges that they are working on are away from the dock into deeper water because you cannot bring it all the way to the dock. So we're seeing some hot, dry weather, which I'm sure is contributing to the lower levels. Water levels are going to fluctuate. That's just how nature works. Um, So is this something that this commission is used to seeing, or they may be a little lower than usual? Is there any worry right now? 
Yeah. Well, th there is a caution for sure. They are lower than we would like them, of course, because it's, like I said, shutting down part of the facilities, but we can still do the work that we need to do. We have not seen any specific cancellations of orders, but we are starting to see people upriver actually getting quotes in Vicksburg for potential transfers by train, meaning that they know they cannot continue going upriver because the, the levels are low, so they might come all the way to Vicksburg, and then our operator here in Vicksburg puts it on a train and potentially sends it, let's say, to uh, Greenville or to other places north of us. So we're starting to see some of that interest, and so if, if the water continues to go lower, it's possible that then we will have more of that that we need to transload. And is that train more expensive for manufacturers? I guess those prices are going to depend on how much demand there is, right? So if the water gets really, really low where you have too many people wanting transfers on train uh, right now, those prices will, will reflect that. Yeah. Are rising shipping costs, whether it's you know more barges because they can't fit a bunch of them, whether it's train, is that something that concerns you as someone in your position at all? Yeah, absolutely. We want commerce to be fluid, you know, and to move fast. Uh, the faster that you can move product, the, the the better for our port, for our community, and for all businesses. And you know, jobs depend on businesses, and if they have. Uh, problems in logistics or any other way uh, that affects the number of jobs that they can maintain. So we definitely want the water to be at the right level all the time if possible, but it's also not uh, doable. <laughs> right. You've got to be prepared for everything, right? right? Yeah. So you said something earlier about how things here in this Pacific part of the Mississippi maybe aren't as bad as they are, maybe a little bit more closer to St. Louis, maybe. Mm -hmm. How else does our particular agriculture ecosystem, part of the river, differ from the rest of the Mississippi River around the country? Well, it's, that's a very long river and with very different uh, characteristics in different places, right? I think that we can speak of the difference between the Vicksburg port and some of the other ports here in the southern section of the Mississippi. And we definitely are able to continue operations a little longer than some of the other uh, smaller ports north of us. So, again, that provides a relief for a period of time because when they have to close, we do get some of those customers that you know, might have to come all the way to Vicksburg to get on a barge and then go to New Orleans or go upriver. Depending on what the water level is, at some point we could also be in the same situation, right? So we, we do what we can to work with all our, uh, I guess, sister ports or brother ports, if you would, but it all depends on the water and, and nature. Right. And like we said earlier, this is in part because of the dry weather, because of the lack of rain. We're not seeing rain from the forecast for a while. Is there any concern on your team that things could get worse before they get better? Yes, there is always concern, but uh, also, like I said before, this is not the worst that uh, our ports have seen. So we have a very skilled uh, group of people uh, with Watco companies that actually runs our port, and they have they have plans for uh, most scenarios. And they, like I said, they have seen wars, and I'm sure that they will be able to uh, treat the customers the, the best way that they can be uh, attended to under the conditions. Right. And before I let you go, is there a certain industry that's affected by this phenomenon more than others, do you think? Well, 
all industries that need to get on the water could be affected, okay? I mean, the impact is kind of across the board when things slow down for everybody. Now, obviously, uh, agricultural products, especially if they are closer to ports that might close sooner because they're not as, um, in the depth is not larger, uh, those would suffer the most. And they're also trading with very small uh, margins, and so any addition to their cost can be catastrophic. And we don't want that for our businesses or our farmers in this state. Pablo Diaz is executive director of the Warren County Port Commission in Vicksburg. Coming up, it's the season for respiratory illnesses, and a pediatric infection disease expert explains the best ways to stay healthy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Why listen to Ride On Mississippi? I got on the bus and I said, well, I'm going to straighten him out. And I went to the back of the bus and I said, Charlie, don't you touch my... I didn't even get sister out. My face began to beat his knuckles up very badly. (laughs) Ride On Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. There are three major respiratory illnesses on the rise this time of year in Mississippi as students return to school. The flu, the respiratory virus called RSV, and COVID-19. They all tend to spread more quickly as we go into the fall and are inside more. Dr. Charlotte Hobbs is a professor of pediatric infectious disease at University of Mississippi Medical Center. In part two of our conversation, she says parents should be armed with the tools they need to keep their families safe. I think that it's really important for parents to be armed with the information that while we are expecting a difficult um, respiratory virus season with a triple threat, of RSV, influenza, and um, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. Uh, Again, we are now at a point that we've never been before in terms of having um, vaccination um, and other tools um, that will uh, enable us to um, reduce the chances of severe infection in um, ourselves and our loved ones. Um, And vaccination is, um, again, you know, one very effective tool at reducing the incidence of severe disease. I think it's important for parents to understand that that these vaccines and these um, preventative measures, um, such as the um, passive immunization with respiratory syncytial virus that we talked about, um, or the monoclonal antibodies, that these tools are available and can be very effective at at, um, reducing incidence of severe disease. I think that if parents understand the potential severity of these diseases, but know that vaccines are very effective at reducing the incidence of severe disease in children, hopefully they will use that information to to make the decision to protect their child. Also, you know, in Mississippi, we like to be social. We like to spend time with our families. We like to spend time with our friends. Um, and the way to protect our friends and families and to be able to to spend that time with them together and you know, spend time with our our loved ones and make sure that everyone's safe and protected. 
The flu vaccine is available now. The CDC says that the new booster dose for COVID is coming soon, maybe as soon as next week. And you mentioned the RSV uh, treatments. In the meantime, with the RSV, what can parents do? So it's a good question because these highly anticipated vaccinations, both active and passive that I was talking about, will be available shortly. The number of um, cases of uh, respiratory syncytial virus are on the increase. So what we can do now is make sure we practice very practical measures um, such as, you know, hand washing, uh, proper hand hygiene, um, making sure one is in a well-ventilated room if possible. You know, if you're sick or if your child is sick, um, consider please um, abiding by CDC guidelines and also keeping them home until they're well. Basically, um, standard, very simple measures are what we can employ right now to reduce the chances of RSV infection. The new monoclonal antibody or passive immunization of RSV is the one that will be available in a few weeks. There is another one that's available right now. It is effective, but its duration of effectiveness or efficacy is a bit shorter than the new monoclonal that's coming out. So there is another one that's available now, but the newer one that will be out um, in a few weeks um, is actually highly effective and has a longer durability of uh, protection. And as I mentioned before, the RSV vaccine, hopefully for pregnant women, will, will be approved by ACIP in a few weeks, as it is already FDA approved. And so that is for prevention, not for treatment. Yes. So that's an important distinguishing characteristic because there was a monoclonal antibody that was being used for SARS-CoV-2, and um, those monoclonal antibodies are not in general use anymore. What actually is available for SARS-CoV-2 that is important to highlight is um, uh, are the antiviral medications, including specifically Paxlovid, this particular drug is actually um, very good at reducing severity of disease and may even actually reduce the chances of long COVID. And these drugs that are available as antivirals for SARS-CoV-2, um, one has to take in consultation with one's um, provider because these drugs do have um, drug interactions, but they also are actually very effective and um, should be very much used by providers in the community to help um, reduce the severity of illness in those who actually do develop SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that is actually important to highlight as well, the availability of these um, antivirals. Dr. Hobbs, is there anything that we missed that's important? I, I would like to actually highlight the importance of the COVID vaccine, not only in terms of prevention of severe disease, but also likely prevention of um, long COVID. So the administration of the vaccine at this point is important for really three main reasons um, for SARS-CoV-2, because I think uh, many of us um, may be sort of tired of hearing about COVID, but the reality is is that even if you have been vaccinated your, or infected, your immunity um, does wane over time, and there are new variants of the virus to which the new vaccine that is coming out in the next couple of days targets specifically. So it is important that even if you've had infection or you've had prior SARS-CoV-2 vaccination, it is actually indeed very important to go and get this new vaccine um, specifically because it will protect um, against a forthcoming season of COVID infection. But in addition, there's data to suggest that the use of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine actually um, may reduce the incidence of long COVID, 
which is a condition that um, has been you know, recently um, characterized and continues to be studied, um, which can cause chronic fatigue, chronic headaches, chronic symptoms that are thought to be due to um, the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so um, vaccination um, may actually reduce the incidence of long COVID. And the third reason that COVID vaccination is important now includes basically that at a population level, we need to do what we can to protect our community at large. And the more people who are vaccinated, the less the chance that the virus has to cause significant morbidity and mortality. All right, Dr. Charlotte Hobbs, pediatric infectious disease physician, University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you so much for your time in speaking with us and educating the public about these uh, diseases. Thank you for taking the time to highlight this very, very important topic. I really appreciate your time in doing this. Coming up, a civil rights activist and author from Mississippi will soon be inducted into her alma mater's National Hall of Fame. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What can you do with the MPB Radio app? Listen live, hear local news, view the schedule, make a contribution, listen to shows on demand, and interact with social media. Get the app for your smartphone now. Why listen to Right on Mississippi? Now you know, when I talk about my mama, I talk about my mama. I don't say my mother, Mm -hmm. I say my mama. But if I get out here to fix my mouth and say this book represents me and my family, my ancestors, I better get it right. Right on Mississippi, a podcast. Download now at mpbonline.org from the Mississippi Book Festival and MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Civil rights activist Ann Moody will soon be inducted into the Tougaloo College National Alumni Hall of Fame. September 15th would have been her 83rd birthday. The civil rights activist and author participated in a sit-in at a Woolworth lunch counter in Jackson in 1963. There's a famous photo of Moody and a white professor and a white student also from Tougaloo covered in condiments. Moody died in 2015. She suffered from dementia. She was 74 years old. During lunch counter sit-ins, civil rights advocates were beaten, burned with cigarettes, and covered in food by crowds of segregationists. Frances Jefferson is the younger sister of Ann Moody. She tells us about the life of her sister and what it was like seeing her go through so much for the goal of desegregation. I remember visiting her in New York when she lived in New York, and she was always happy. She was very tall, I think. You know, she was so beautiful. She was fun to be around, always laughing, and always happy. And she was a person that she just, keen in on wanting everybody to be educated. That was her big thing about wanting black people to be educated and wanted black people to try to build on their own lives. I've heard some videos that from some interviews that she's done, that she had done back in the early 70s, and that was her key thing. She loved the state of Mississippi. She often spoke about how beautiful the property was here and how beautiful it is here in this state. And she wanted, I think she just wanted everybody to succeed and everybody to be happy. I remember her laughing. She loved to dance and she loved her hat. <laughs> Those are great memories. She was a wonderful person. She never 
you know, all families go through their uh, amount of discord, especially one that I, that's as big as ours. But you know what? I don't care how people treated her, what they said to her. I never heard her speak a bad word about anyone, or any of us, or anything. She was always just wanting to be happy. When she was in college at Tougaloo here in Jackson, she responded to the call from Megar Evers to participate in demonstrations, one of which included uh, a sit-in at a lunch counter in downtown Jackson. And there's an iconic photo from what happened. She was there with a white professor from the college by the name of John Salter and another student who happened to be white, Joan Mulholland. And that picture shows a crowd around them and condiments being poured on them. When was the first time you saw that photo, and how did it make you feel? It made me cry. It did. And it made me realize just how brave she was. She was a brave person. She put her own safety at risk, and she, she risked a lot. And I just admired her so much because she was such a brave person to put herself right in the lines then. And she didn't back down. She did not back down. Did she ever talk to you about what happened that day? No, she didn't talk very much about it. She just, you know, my, my most of my dealings with her was in the 90s when she was back here, when she first came back here to Mississippi to live. And she she talked about a lot of things, but most of the time she always talked about my mother because she was extremely close to my mother. And she would talk sometimes frequently about it, but I think the things that, I discussed most with her because she was still a teenager, I believe, when Emmett Till died. And I think she she brought that up to me before. And, you know, she wrote a second book called uh, Mr. Death and it's four stories about incidents that happened here in the state of Mississippi. And uh, I have I actually have one of those books. And there's only a few copies because it's been out of uh, press and circulation for quite some time now. So we talked a little bit about the stories in that book about the people that were referenced in those stories. Her book, Coming of Age in Mississippi, was required reading for high school and college students. And as you mentioned, it still is. What does that say to you about her experience, what she went through, and her legacy? I think it it bodes great for her legacy because what she wrote I think it's always going to be timeless here in America because the things that she went through, from my experience, I've lived here in Mississippi and I've lived in Missouri and in California. And I don't think that things have changed that much. And I think that it's a great read for anyone. I think, you know, I think that most people should go back and take a look and see where we were back then and see how we are today. And look at the shoulders that, you know, that we that we should be proud to stand on because these are the people who put it on the line for us and be grateful and remember them. And I think that it's great that that book is still required reading in college. Civil rights activists, I have read, also suffer trauma. Did yes. you notice that she went through changes based upon what she went through fighting for civil rights in Mississippi growing up in poverty, and the struggles that she had. Yes, 
I didn't. Yes, she did go through a lot of changes mentally. I think that a lot of things were on her mind a lot of the time, but mostly I think she chose to just to try to remember, just try to be in the moment and try to be happy. That's what I remember most about her. She was always trying to be in the moment. I know she had those memories, and I know they. I know it caused her some issues. But I, but what I remember most about her is her being in the moment. And I remember back in 1996, I believe she wanted me to take her to Natchez because you know she went to school there first. And I think she was a little bit disappointed that when she got there that they had taken the school. I think at the time it was. Uh, a training school where they were teaching teaching girls how to sew and things like that. They just and I think that that really kind of that touched her a little bit that her, that that it was no longer there. Frances Jefferson is the younger sister of civil rights activist and author Anne Moody. We'll have more of our conversation tomorrow. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.